the more that we integrate all of these tech channels into our lives, the more it becomes hard to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. I'm going to try and use like six to seven different analogies for what we're talking about to make it really nice and <laughs> hospitable and confusing for the listener. I've spent a lot of time interviewing all sorts of accomplished researchers and leading experts for this season of Life Meet Tech. But one of my favorite people to talk to is my friend Greg Teachout. Greg is a colleague, but more than that, he's just a really curious person. Sort of an armchair expert on technology and pretty much everything. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks a lot for having me, Prabhu. Greg, you and I recently talked about viral content that we see all over the internet and on social media platforms. Educate us. Tell us, how does something go viral? I suppose that depends on the source and the topic and everything. But as somebody with a sort of casual abiding interest in what we can just maybe call thought contagions or memes or ideas and the way that they spread, it's been my kind of curmudgeonly view that the signal to noise ratio just keeps changing. So tell me, what what is a meme? I think the meme in this sense was introduced in Richard Dawkins' 1976, The Selfish Gene, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And so this is just kind of an idea or message or narrative that has replicative properties. So something that gets introduced into the ether and starts replicating itself. So very much like a virus. So it looks for hosts and it looks for vulnerabilities and it clings on and then it transmits and, and spreads. Yeah, obviously it's tempting to make things anthropomorphic because it's fun, but I think the method of transmission is very similar and therefore it's a useful analogy. So meme usually has to do with some kind of a social virus, right? It is right. a phenomenon that uh, people believe and endorse and then it just takes on a life of its own. I thought the Bernie Sanders photo was a terrific meme. I think the Sanders meme is actually super interesting as an information nugget or a narrative because it's not actually saying anything, which renders it to be almost universally appealing. And so you've got Sanders critics and Sanders fans and the rare person who's indifferent to Sanders all sharing the Sanders with his mittens meme almost as if they're friends. And I think that that might be one of the only meme examples I've seen in the last few years that seems like it's genuinely in good fun. So what are the pernicious ones that we should be concerned about? Obviously, I think that's certainly a matter of opinion. Uh, why don't you tell me what you think are the most pernicious ones off the top of your head, and then I'll tell you mine. I think things that do harm to society. Fundamentally, when, you, when a group of folks get together and disagree with a scientific fact that could save lives. For example, you know, the anti-vaxxers are so convinced that it's wrong, and, and I think some of them truly believe it, but that collective belief really hurts not just a few human beings, but a large swath of society. To me, that is sort of a pernicious a rumor which takes a life of its own. Yeah, I think that's fair. Folks to believe that this is so dangerous. Let me ask you this. What makes the internet a carrier of these memes and rumors or disinformation, misinformation? I think social proof is one of the ways that human beings more or less suss out what's true and what's not. I mean, if you say that you're in a storm relief shelter, you're in a gymnasium because a hurricane has destroyed half of your town, and there's only a few people outside, and they all come in and they say the storm is still outside raging, you would have to be a real skeptic to say, I don't believe you guys, I'm going to go outside for myself. Now, there are people like that, certainly. But social proof seems like it's got evolutionary biological roots that are 
really grounded in good instincts. The problem is on the internet, there's a flattening effect where we can now just distribute this kind of social proof into small pockets all across society and kind of build an artificial consensus. So even if half of 1% of the population believes something, suddenly this feels like an actual movement. It feels like a community. And then all sorts of other imperatives start to descend on this idea. Would it be fair to say then that democratization of the internet has had unintended effects? And one of that could be this the spawning of uh, these fringe ideas. Yeah, I think so. This is the part where I come out against democracy and lose my job and probably all my friends. <laughs> I don't <laughs> so want that, Greg. You heard it here first. Greg Teachout thinks democracy is a mistake. I just don't think there's any way to win this particular debate about whether or not democratization is intrinsically good or bad. I think that you are lowering the bar for access. You allow people to be creative and spread information however they please, and you're losing a lot in the process too. That's very interesting. So the unintended effect here is by lowering the bar, we've also lowered the bar on the quality of content. And people who are supposed to be the the checks and balances, the so-called gatekeepers, now their role has diminished to some extent. Yes, exactly. Or even eliminated in some ways. If you are a blogger, you just post what you believe. It doesn't have to be checked by anybody. Exactly. And again, I'm just making an observation. I'm not being prescriptive here. I think any system can be gamed. And so if you're simply looking at all the ways in which a system like that is dysfunctional, sure, it's really tempting to say, let's throw open the gates. Uh, I'm not making an argument for some kind of elitist technocracy either, but I just think we've shifted our entire media landscape from one that is entirely gatekeeper driven to something that is almost not gatekeeper driven at all in terms of what's actually, quote unquote, allowed inside. And now I think we're all living in the consequences of that for better or for worse. That's an excellent point. Another point that you made, the signal to noise ratio. What do you mean by signal and noise in this information on the internet context? Let's just imagine that you want to know the weather. So it's not immediately outside of your window. And so you look at a weather site. But now, instead of just one or two weather sites that you can think are reasonably authoritative, you can choose from a thousand different weather sites and all of them give you different weather. And depending on what you hope the weather is this weekend, you can just choose the site you like. And also, there's no empirical check against what the weather is on the weekend. So now you just live in a world of total weather speculation. And I would say the signal in this case is what the weather actually is, and the noise is everything else. Unfortunately, things like immigration policy, vaccine efficacy, how to live in a civil society are not strictly matters of signal, right? Like these are super nuanced policy issues. So getting straight up objective truth disentangled from propaganda or just misinformation that's innocent enough is already difficult enough. And then you stack multiple versions of that within one of these complicated issues. Maybe I'm becoming a premature pessimist, but it seems like more than we can do at this point. And so you're saying that because everybody can post information online, that is a lot of noise. And some of that is good information, which is signal. And that signal is becoming fainter in this big cacophony of noises. 
Yes, exactly. And I mean, can you think of what's some content that you personally really enjoy consuming that is also truly neutral or ideologically unmoored in some way? So one thing I'd say is I've been obsessed by this Mars landing. I just can't stop. I'm like going to this NASA site looking for new images. And thank God, for now at least, I haven't seen the influence of politics on it. I truly enjoy it. I hope it remains that way and it doesn't become another political cauldron. Well, I was going to invite you to my Mars landing truther group. So Prabhu, I must say I can see you right now. And your, may I say, childlike excitement about Mars is, <laughs> is, is very much evident. I've been following a person on Twitter who's taken this totally arbitrary stance of trying to be the gloomy wet blanket over people's Mars enthusiasm and just talks about how much people love this Mars landing. And it's so stupid. So I want to hear from the other side. Oh, wet blanket. <laughs> Come on. How could you not like I, this? It's fascinating. <laughs> just the seven minutes, right? I think that the seven minutes of hell, they say, the landing on Mars, that is so intricate. And it's just like crazy speed and velocity. The heat shield has to come off. The parachute has to launch. And so many things have to happen. And, and then it beautifully drops the rover. I mean, that is amazing how it just drops this little robot onto the planet. And what I find exciting is the possibility that technology and people can come together on this massive collaborative project and do something that is just, it lifts the spirit. One of the things that I've been thinking about, it comes from the book that you like, Thought Contagion by Aaron Lynch. He talks about this doomsday scenarios and how they have a lot of sticking power. Yes. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, it kind of comes down to the two classic types of tactics, right? You can induce people uh, or you can aggress them and, and make them fear. So you've got the carrot and the stick. I think the stickiest memes and the stickiest narratives actually have elements of both. So they induce you to be part of something and make you feel worthwhile and self-actualized. But then the stick, well, I can't think of a stick more ultimate than like the end of the world, for instance, or the end of humanity or damnation or whatever you call it. So doomsday scenarios do all the things that great fiction does. They have huge stakes. They make you the protagonist in some vicarious or literal sense. And they put a ticking clock over the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's like designing a pot boiler and then making people the center of that. It's, again, an incredibly intoxicating mixture. So what is it about QAnon that makes it so attractive for so many people? So I do think talking about this is fascinating, but it's really important uh, for my sanity to remind myself that even though... QAnon has tons of visibility. It's an outsized visibility relative to how many people are actually really into it. And the people that we saw rioting at the Capitol are also a small subset of those people. And so these are the mental gymnastics I go through every time that there's some sort of mass hysteria or tragedy <laughs> to remind myself that not that many people are actually interested in this relative to the population. Now, that is cold comfort, but it's my comfort. Now, the future. Let's talk a little bit about the future. What can we do to combat misinformation or disinformation online? So some kind of algorithmic fact-checking. How would you react to that? Uh, I would react poorly, personally, because <laughs> I, I, I don't trust technocratic solutions to almost anything. To me, there are lots of people who already have a predisposition to credulity. And this is always the case. I think we all have all of these biases that are just waiting to be kind of activated by the right stimulus. And the internet has collected people who are especially vulnerable to that, and it's allowed them to form clubs. And that 
already makes me nervous enough. So I don't know that then trying to take something that's truly automated is a good recipe, but I don't know what their solution is. I'm not suggesting state-sponsored media is the panacea to our problem either. Right. There has to be some review process, though. It has to be a combination, I suppose, with both some machine learning or elements of technology embedded in it, but also vetted by some human agent or agency right? Do you think we're living in a uniquely populist moment? One of the things that the internet has done is given people freedom for self-expression. Some people say, you know, it sort of reinforces our narcissistic streak. Now, I don't see how over time we are going to curb our enthusiasm for that, you know, indulgence. You're right. Excessive populism leads to solutions that are not forward thinking, but I don't know what else you could do. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know what the happy compromise is, but what I'm afraid of, and this is the least popular opinion in any discussion, I'm afraid we're actually living in a best case scenario right now. And it feels so dystopic to so many people that they think that can't possibly be true. We have to curb all this misinformation. And I just think it's the natural collision of a very heterogeneous population with an incredible mechanism for sharing information. There's an incredible distrust of bodies of quote-unquote elites or the qualified or anyone passing their wand over things and, and anointing them as being true or untrue in some way. So I'm not sure how we get out of this moment. So my hope is that eventually we will find a balance. I mean, people just don't have that much time to be focused on all the silliness. So I think we... <laughs> We'll move forward, I believe. Let me ask you one more question. We've talked a lot about fringe ideas. Do you have a fringe belief that you're willing to disclose? (laughs) (laughs) I really hope you ask every guest that because that's my favorite interview question. Do I have a fringe belief? I don't know that I have a fringe belief, but I, I tend to remain, as you can probably have told, so equivocal and agnostic about almost everything. Like my conviction of free speech as the core of a free society is strong, but I don't know if I have a fringe belief. I have many fringe interests. Okay, but I give, give us your fringe <laughs> interests. So what about aliens in New Mexico? So my fringe interests tend to be artistic. So I'd like to know, oh, so-and-so is building a Stonehenge out of rusty cars out in the desert for an audience of two, you know, things like that. I just bought a hurdy-gurdy, which I think I mentioned to you the other day. What the heck is a hurdy-gurdy? <laughs> <laughs> a hurdy-gurdy is a wheel fiddle or violin wheel. There are different translations, but it's essentially a, an early medieval through uh, Renaissance kind of instrument that's a stringed instrument that you play with a series of keys. It's actually one of the most complicated instruments on earth from a mechanical standpoint. So imagine you're cranking with your right hand, playing keys with your left, but when you play the keys, they're depressing a series of strings. So it's kind of like you're playing multiple violins. Um, And there are drone strings and sympathetic strings. It's a mess. Mm, Sounds like torture (laughs) to me, Greg, but uh, whatever floats your boat. I'm I'm happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I'm excited about it. So, Greg, on a scale of one to 10, how good of a hurdy-gurdy player are you? Uh, One being the worst, I am probably a zero. So what gave you the urge to just go online and plunk down a couple of grand on a hurdy-gurdy. Actually, the internet enabled this from start to finish. It's entirely oh, it's the, the internet, right? So it's it the is. internet's it is. fault, yeah. It, that's right. Yeah. Does that hold up in court? Oh, I don't know. No, I always loved the sound of the hurdy-gurdy when I had heard it in music because of my bizarre and abiding interest in ancient music of all sorts. But I didn't know what it was. I actually thought for a while it was some kind of woodwind, and then I thought maybe there was a bagpipe element because there was some buzzing involved. That's the trumpet strings, it turns out. 
Uh, but eventually enough Googling and YouTubing made me realize I was listening to a hurdy-gurdy and then I just I fell down the gurdy-shaped rabbit hole. <laughs> I love it. All right, Greg, thank you so much for taking time joining us today. It was just fascinating. Enjoyed the conversation. It was truly my pleasure. Thanks, Prabhu. Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill. And hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Greg Teachout. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.